welcome to another exhilarating episode of Money Mayhem, where we uncover the thrilling narratives behind the world's most notorious financial phenomena. Our guide, the enigmatic trader Joe, a Wall Street veteran, will take us on a wild journey through the tumultuous seas of finance. Join us as we embark on Pirate of the Caribbean, the Stanford Financial Group's billion-dollar deception, a thrilling journey through a tropical tale of unprecedented wealth, deception, and downfall. Grab your sun hats because we're about to embark on an adventure into the heart of one of the most audacious financial scandals of our time, the Stanford Financial Group saga. Before we continue, a word from our sponsor who makes this podcast possible. Introducing the Mitzi Matsi Discovery app, a captivating foreign language learning experience for children aged 2 to 7. Research shows that early foreign language learning enhances critical thinking, problem-solving, and creativity. With the Mitzi Matsi app, children can explore English, Spanish, Mandarin, French, and more. Your subscription grants access to over 250 interactive ebooks. So download the Mizzy Matsi Discovery app and start your child on a magical language journey with a free 30-day trial. You can find the App Store download links in this episode's description. And now, on with this episode of Money Mayhem. Here's what to look forward to. Part 1. The Rise of Stanford Financial Group. A Caribbean Dream. Part 1 sets the stage by introducing listeners to the origins of the Stanford Financial Group. We'll explore how Alan Stanford, a former bankrupt gym owner, launched the company and expanded its operations across the Caribbean. We'll also delve into the company's meteoric rise, fueled by high interest rates on certificates of deposit and aggressive marketing strategies. Part 2. The Lure of the Exotic. How Stanford Sold His Scheme. In Part 2, we investigate how Stanford was able to attract investors from around the world. We'll discuss the allure of high returns and the promise of investing in the exotic Caribbean, which drew in customers from 104 countries. We'll also take a closer look at the sales tactics used and how Stanford used his charisma and the perception of exclusivity to lure investors. Part 3. Red Flags, the Warning Signs Ignored In Part 3, we examined the warning signs that hinted at the fraudulent nature of Stanford's operation. From the unusually high returns and the secretive nature of the bank's operations to the concerns raised by financial analysts and the early investigations by the SEC, we'll delve into why these red flags were ignored and how Stanford managed to continue his operation for as long as he did. Part 4. The Fall. Unmasking the Stanford Financial Group. In Part 4, we delve into the details the collapse of Stanford Financial Group. We'll discuss the role of the 2008 financial crisis in triggering the SEC's decisive action against Stanford. We'll also explore the aftermath of Stanford's arrest, including the realization by investors that they had lost their savings and the international effort to trace and recover the embezzled funds. Part 5 Lessons Learned, the Stanford Financial Group Scandal in Retrospect. In the final part, we'll extract lessons from the Stanford Financial Group Scandal. We'll examine the impacts on regulation and oversight in the financial industry, 
discuss how the financial landscape has changed since the scandal and what investors can do to protect themselves from such frauds in the future. We'll also share updates on Alan Stanford and his victims, wrapping up this audacious tale of a Caribbean con. Part 1. The Rise of Stanford Financial Group, A Caribbean Dream Picture this. The year is 1985, and a young man named Alan Stanford steps off the airplane onto the warm, sandy beaches of Montserrat, a hidden gem nestled in the heart of the Caribbean. The island, known for its breathtaking natural beauty and tranquility, seems like an idyllic escape from the bustling world. Stanford, a Texan with a swagger and a past as a bankrupt gym owner, is here for a new beginning, armed with a daring plan that will forever change the financial landscape of the Caribbean. But let's pause for a moment and rewind the clock. Alan Stanford was born and raised in the small town of Mexia, Texas, where the aroma of oil and the sound of drilling rigs filled the air. Growing up in a family deeply entrenched in the insurance business, Stanford developed a keen understanding of the cutthroat world of finance from an early age. However, his first venture into business, a local gym, ended in bankruptcy and left him searching for his next big break. It was during this search that Stanford stumbled upon the world of offshore banking, an enticing realm shrouded in secrecy, where fortunes could be made and lost at the stroke of a pen. For a man with Stanford's ambitious streak, it was a realm ripe for exploration. Armed with little more than a suitcase filled with dreams, Stanford arrived on the shores of Montserrat, determined to establish his own financial empire. He saw an opportunity in the offshore banking industry that others had overlooked. The relaxed regulations and favorable tax environment offered the perfect conditions for his audacious plan to take root and flourish. Stanford wasted no time in setting up his first bank on the island. It was no ordinary bank, mind you. It was an offshore bank, a haven for those seeking to shield their assets from prying eyes and high taxation. This choice set Stanford apart from the traditional financial institutions and allowed him to craft his own rules. With a charismatic smile and a silver tongue, Stanford set out to captivate investors from around the world. He devised an innovative strategy, offering high interest rates on certificates of deposit that seemed too good to be true. Investors were drawn to the allure of substantial returns in a realm where risk-taking was tempered by the promise of confidentiality. But Stanford's charisma was not the only factor fueling his success. He understood the power of marketing, and he employed every tool at his disposal to promote his bank. From eye-catching advertisements to high-profile sponsorships, he positioned his institution as a symbol of trust, stability, and Caribbean charm. The bank's name soon became synonymous with luxury and exclusivity. As Stanford's wealth grew, so did his appetite for the high life. He reveled in the trappings of success, hosting extravagant parties aboard luxury yachts where champagne flowed like water, and guests reveled in the ambiance of opulence. He spared no expense, ensuring that his guests experienced the pinnacle of Caribbean indulgence. One memorable anecdote recounts a cricket match organized by Stanford, where the stakes were unimaginably high. Million-dollar prizes awaited the victors, and the event attracted top talent from around the world. 
The match became a symbol of Stanford's influence and a testament to the lavish spectacle he created. It was as if he had turned the island into his personal playground, a stage for his grand performance. However, as is often the case, the shine of success masked a darker truth. Stanford's empire was built on a foundation of deceit and illusion. The high interest rates promised to depositors were not sustainable, and the returns were fueled by a vicious cycle of new investments paying off old investors, a classic Ponzi scheme. In 1988, sensing the need for a more stable base, Stanford shifted his operations to the island of Antigua. With its pristine beaches, crystal-clear waters, and lenient banking regulations, Antigua became the new home for Stanford's financial empire. The move allowed him to consolidate his influence and further expand his reach. Renaming his bank, the Stanford International Bank, he positioned himself as a key player in Antigua's economy. This transformation was cemented by the bestowing of a knighthood upon Stanford by the Antiguan government, adding an air of legitimacy to his endeavors. The heart of Stanford's operation lay in his certificates of deposit. These financial instruments, offering extraordinary returns, became the magnet that attracted investors from all walks of life. They were sold as a pathway to financial prosperity, a chance to share in the spoils of Stanford's Caribbean dream. And people bought into the vision, entrusting their hard-earned money to a man they saw as a visionary and financial wizard. One remarkable anecdote tells the story of a retired couple from a small town in the United States. They had saved diligently throughout their lives, dreaming of a peaceful retirement. When they learned about Stanford's high-interest accounts, they saw it as an opportunity to secure their golden years. Little did they know that their dreams were about to be shattered by the very man they had entrusted their life savings to. As we reach the conclusion of Part 1, it's crucial to understand that we have only begun to scratch the surface of this intricate web of deception. In Part 2, we'll delve deeper into Stanford's audacious scheme, exposing the threads that bind this Caribbean mirage. Brace yourselves for the shocking revelations and unexpected twists that lie ahead. The Caribbean con is about to unravel, and the truth will be unveiled. Part 2. The Lure of the Exotic. How Stanford Sold His Scheme. In Part 1, our swashbuckling financial buccaneer, Alan Stanford, had just uprooted his operations from Montserrat to the politically stable and regulation-friendly shores of Antigua. If the island of Montserrat was the prologue to our tale, then Antigua is where the real story begins. Now, let's dive deeper into the captivating world of Antigua. Picture pristine sandy beaches, crystal-clear turquoise waters, and a tropical paradise in every sense. But beneath this idyllic facade, lay an environment that was alluring to those with creative financial ambitions. It was a sort of financial Eden, where the forbidden fruit took the form of lax banking regulations and an accommodating government. Stanford wasted no time in making his mark on Antigua's economy. He swiftly became a key player, employing hundreds of locals and becoming a prominent figure in the island's society. But it wasn't just his business ventures that garnered attention. Stanford was about to embark on a journey that would elevate him to knighthood. 
Yes, dear listeners, our Texan gym owner turned financial magnate was now Sir Alan Stanford. His knighthood came with a story that's worth its weight in gold. You see, the Antiguan government knighted him for his significant contributions to the island's economy. However, this move raised eyebrows among some members of the British establishment who questioned the legitimacy of the honor. But Stanford, with his characteristic flair for the dramatic, held his knighting ceremony in Antigua with none other than a real lord, Lord Geoffrey Archer of Weston Supermare. It was a spectacle of pomp, ceremony, and a touch of controversy. Stanford even went so far as to purchase a title for his wife, ensuring she could share in the noble distinction as Lady Stanford. Talk about a knight to remember. And here's an interesting connection. Lord Geoffrey Archer is one of the world's best-selling authors, with international sales passing 275 million copies. His first book, Not a Penny More, Not a Penny Less, is a captivating novel that follows a group of individuals who have been swindled out of their money by a wealthy conman. Determined to seek justice and get their revenge, they devise an audacious plan to take back exactly what was stolen. But Stanford's grandeur didn't stop at knighthood. He was constructing a persona, a larger-than-life image that captivated those around him. He became known as the generous tycoon, the cricket enthusiast, and the self-made billionaire. Stanford's lavish lifestyle was on full display, and he relished being in the public eye. He hosted extravagant parties on his private island, where celebrities and VIPs mingled with abandon. He even invited renowned cricket players to his tournaments, transforming the matches into star-studded events. Stanford's love for cricket reached such heights that he once landed his helicopter on the field during a match, causing a buzz of excitement and disbelief among the spectators. It was a scene straight out of a James Bond movie, with Stanford playing the role of the charismatic villain. As if a knighthood wasn't enough, Stanford was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007 by a Venezuelan legislator. The nomination cited his contributions to economic development and poverty alleviation in the Caribbean region. Ultimately, Stanford did not receive the prestigious award. Some anecdotes into Stanford's affinity for flamboyant displays of wealth. His acquisition of a custom-made Boeing 757 aircraft famously nicknamed The Bull, after Stanford's company logo, was outfitted with luxurious interiors, including a bedroom, conference room, and a plush lounge for entertaining guests. Stanford's love for sailing led him to become the owner of a lavish 112-foot yacht named Sea Eagle. The yacht boasted opulent amenities, including a bar, jacuzzi, and even a helicopter pad. It became a symbol of Stanford's extravagant lifestyle and was often used for hosting lavish parties and events. He was also known for his love of collecting rare and valuable items. One of his notable acquisitions was a signed first edition of Charles Dickens's novel, Great Expectations, which he purchased for a whopping $1.5 million at an auction. He also amassed an extensive collection of valuable artworks, including pieces by renowned artists such as Picasso and Monet. But behind the scenes, the wheels of Stanford's financial empire were turning at a rapid pace. The Stanford International Bank became the centerpiece of his operation. It was here that the true extent of his scheme would unfold.
the bank's certificates of deposit, CDs, became the main attraction for investors. They promised astonishingly high returns, far surpassing what traditional banks could offer. The allure was undeniable, and people flocked to invest their hard-earned money in these seemingly golden opportunities. Stanford's secret? Well, he claimed to have a unique investment strategy, a secret formula that enabled him to consistently achieve high returns. He boasted of an all-star team of analysts, the best and brightest minds in the financial industry. However, the reality was far from what investors believed. The analysts at Stanford's bank were not Wall Street whizzes with decades of experience. They were relatively inexperienced locals from Antigua. The office itself, while functional, was not the glamorous setting one might expect. It was a modest building, hidden behind the curtain of Stanford's charismatic persona. And what about those high returns? Yes, they were real, but not for the reasons investors thought. Behind the scenes, Stanford was operating a classic Ponzi scheme. He used the money from new investors to pay the promised returns to earlier investors. It was a delicate balancing act, a juggling act of financial deceit. And to add to the allure, Stanford took an audacious step. He guaranteed the safety of the investments, a claim that was virtually unheard of in the volatile world of finance. While guarantees are commonplace for household appliances, they are rarely, if ever, associated with investments. But Stanford knew that the promise of safety was just as enticing as the allure of high returns. As Stanford's empire expanded, so did the rumors. Financial circles whispered about the legitimacy of the high returns and the guarantees. Some sensed that something was amiss, a whiff of deception in the air. But for many. The allure of the promise Stanford was selling overshadowed any doubts they may have had. In an attempt to boost the credibility of his empire, Stanford strategically placed key executives and respected figures on his board of directors. One such example was Sir Alan Shepard, a former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, who lent an air of credibility and respectability to Stanford's organization. Stanford also had a knack for befriending influential figures, including politicians and celebrities. He had connections with notable individuals, such as former U.S. President Bill Clinton, who attended one of Stanford's charity events. These high-profile associations only added to Stanford's allure and helped him project an image of success and legitimacy. As part two of our journey ends, we are left with more questions than answers. How long could Stanford keep this grand illusion intact? How did he manage to keep regulators at bay? And what happens when a house of cards begins to crumble? In Part 3, we'll dive further into the intricate web of Stanford's scheme. We'll explore how he managed to lure investors from all corners of the globe, and we'll witness the first signs of cracks in the foundation of his deceptive empire. Part 3. Red Flags. The Warning Signs Ignored. When it comes to Alan Stanford's offshore banking empire, red flags were aplenty, yet they were largely ignored or brushed aside in the face of Stanford's charm and seemingly miraculous returns. In this part, we'll delve into the warning signs that were overlooked and the mechanisms Stanford employed to maintain the illusion of financial success. One of the most glaring red flags was the extraordinary returns offered by Stanford's certificates of deposit. 
while conventional banks offered modest interest rates, Stanford's bank promised returns that left them in the dust. A double-trouble case of too good to be true. But instead of raising suspicions, these high returns enticed investors, luring them with the promise of double-digit interest rates ranging from 10% to 15%. These rates were substantially higher than the average interest rates offered by reputable banks during that time. To provide context, during the period of Stanford's scheme, interest rates offered by traditional banks were significantly lower. In the early to mid-2000s, average interest rates on CDs and savings accounts at reputable banks typically ranged from 2% to 5%, depending on the specific market conditions and the duration of the investment. To justify these returns, Stanford touted his unique investment strategy. He claimed to have assembled a team of brilliant analysts who possessed an uncanny ability to navigate the ever-changing global markets. According to Stanford, his team identified trends, made nimble investment shifts, and consistently outperformed the competition. He spun tales of personally recruiting each analyst, searching the globe for the brightest minds in finance. These stories added to the myth of Stanford's genius and captivated potential investors. Stanford's love for theatrics further masked the warning signs. He would host lavish parties on luxurious yachts, where he regaled attendees with tales of his investment triumphs. One of his favorite stories involved a tech startup that he spotted in Silicon Valley before anyone else recognized its potential. According to Stanford, the stock price soared, highlighting his team's exceptional foresight. These anecdotes created an atmosphere of exclusivity and heightened the allure of investing with Stanford. But Stanford didn't stop at parties and stories. He understood the power of sports in fostering connections. As a cricket enthusiast, he sponsored the Stanford 2020 tournament in Antigua, offering million-dollar prizes. One match in 2008 was especially memorable. Stanford landed his helicopter on the cricket ground, carrying a case filled with $20 million in cash, the prize money for the match. The grand gesture was a spectacle, captivating the crowd and reinforcing Stanford's image as a larger-than-life figure. As Stanford's wealth grew, so did his influence over Antigua. He became the island's largest employer and a prominent benefactor. His philanthropy extended to building schools, funding scholarships, and rescuing struggling local businesses. One such business was a bakery on the brink of collapse. Stanford stepped in, purchased a significant stake, and revitalized the bakery's operations. These acts of generosity solidified his status and ingratiated him with the Antiguan community. Behind the scenes, however, Stanford's empire was built on a foundation of deception. His investment strategy, touted as revolutionary, was nothing more than smoke and mirrors. Unbeknownst to his investors, the bank's operations were far from transparent, with little oversight or scrutiny. Instead of making prudent investments, Stanford was using new investor funds to pay earlier investors, a classic hallmark of a Ponzi scheme. In the next part, we'll untangle the intricate web of Stanford's operations and shed light on the shocking extent of his deception. Part 4. The Fall, Unmasking the Stanford Financial Group 
To fully comprehend the magnitude of the Stanford Financial Group scandal, we must dive into the depths of its fall from grace. The year was 2009, and the ripples of Stanford's fraud were about to crash upon the shores of the financial world. This was the defining moment when the undercurrents of deceit and illusion finally broke the surface, exposing the true nature of Stanford's empire. On February 17, 2009, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, dropped a bombshell, charging Stanford and his financial empire with massive ongoing fraud. The shockwaves reverberated through boardrooms and financial institutions worldwide. The foundation upon which Stanford had built his empire was revealed to be nothing more than quicksand. To understand how Alan Stanford, once a Forbes-listed billionaire, fell so spectacularly, we must dissect the intricate mechanisms of his elaborate scheme. At the heart of Stanford's operation were his Certificates of Deposit, CDs, issued by the Stanford International Bank. These were no ordinary CDs. They promised astronomical returns that far surpassed what traditional banks could offer. Stanford attributed these seemingly miraculous returns to his bank's unique investment strategy and the expertise of his all-star team of financial wizards. Here's an intriguing twist in the tale. Stanford's team allegedly included a psychic analyst. Yes, a psychic. Stanford claimed that this clairvoyant individual possessed the uncanny ability to predict market trends with astonishing accuracy. Whether this was a clever marketing tactic, an eccentric belief, or simply an embellishment to add an air of mystery, we may never truly know. Nevertheless, the inclusion of a psychic certainly added a curious touch to Stanford's financial operations. These high-yielding CDs proved irresistible to investors who were enticed by the allure of outsized returns and the aura of exclusivity that Stanford meticulously cultivated. Money poured into the Stanford International Bank, attracting a diverse range of investors, including wealthy individuals, university endowments, and even some governments. But beneath the glossy surface, cracks began to appear. Stanford's claims of a diversified investment portfolio were revealed to be smoke and mirrors. In reality, he was using funds from new investors to pay off the earlier ones, a classic Ponzi scheme in action. The house of cards was on the verge of collapse. The first tremors shook the foundation in 2008 with the onset of the global financial crisis. Nervous investors sought to withdraw their funds, only to discover that Stanford's bank was ill-equipped to meet their demands. The elaborate charade was teetering on the edge of oblivion. Returning to February 17, 2009, the SEC charges plunged a dagger into the heart of Stanford's empire. The once invulnerable facade crumbled, revealing a web of deceit and betrayal. However, while Stanford's empire was laid bare, the mastermind himself remained elusive. An interesting anecdote emerges from those chaotic days. Stanford was eventually located several days after the SEC charges were filed. Where was he found? Not in some clandestine hideaway, but rather at the home of a girlfriend in Virginia. It seems even the most sophisticated and cunning of individuals can find themselves seeking refuge in unexpected places. In the aftermath of the charges, Stanford's investors faced a harsh reality. Their once highly esteemed investments, 
once considered as good as gold, were now rendered worthless. It was a rude awakening, a stark reminder of the risks inherent in pursuing extraordinary returns. Stanford's subsequent trial in 2012 was a spectacle of grand proportions. The trial itself was significantly delayed due to various legal complications and Stanford's attempts to challenge the charges against him. It took several years from the time of his arrest to the start of the trial, leaving the victims and the public anxiously awaiting justice. In addition, Stanford's defense attorneys faced financial challenges throughout the trial. With their fees unpaid, some lawyers even requested to withdraw from the case, leading to further complications and delays in the legal proceedings. And just to add to the circus, one juror involved in the trial, despite being explicitly instructed not to discuss the case, signed a book deal to write a memoir about her experience as a juror during the Stanford trial. This raised concerns about the potential influence on the impartiality of the jury's deliberations. Alan Stanford, true to his nature as a consummate showman, refused to go down without a fight. Throughout his trial, he vehemently maintained his innocence, crafting a narrative of being a legitimate businessman caught in a web of government conspiracy. In one memorable moment during the trial, Stanford, dressed immaculately in a crisp white shirt, passionately argued his case with the judge. It was an Oscar-worthy performance that left an indelible mark on those present. Giving evidence, Stanford claimed that his bank's investments were backed by highly valuable assets, including a significant amount of British pounds held in a secret Swiss bank account. However, it was later revealed that the supposed pounds were actually counterfeit money, further highlighting the depth of Stanford's deception. However, despite his theatrics, the jury remained unmoved. On that fateful day of March 6, 2012, the gavel fell, delivering the long-awaited verdict. Stanford was convicted on 13 out of 14 charges, including fraud, conspiracy, and obstruction. The sentencing was severe, 110 years in prison, a stark realization that even the charm and charisma that had propelled him to great heights couldn't save him from the scales of justice. A quick anecdote. After his conviction, Alan Stanford was assigned the inmate number 35017-183, which he proudly displayed on his prison uniform. Some have noted that he considered the number 35017 as symbolic, representing his initials, A.S., and the date of his birth, August 17th. As we draw near the conclusion of Part 4, we are left with the debris of Stanford's empire a chilling reminder of the perils of unchecked greed and the fragility of illusion. Yet, the story doesn't end here. In the final part of this episode, we'll explore the far-reaching aftermath of the Stanford scandal, uncover the enduring lessons learned, and offer guidance to savers and investors in navigating the treacherous seas of finance in the wake of such monumental catastrophes. Part 5. Lessons Learned the Stanford Financial Group Scandal. In retrospect, we have embarked on a gripping journey through the rise, fall, and aftermath of the Stanford Financial Group. As we reach the final chapter of this captivating tale, it is crucial to reflect on the lessons we can learn from this unprecedented financial scandal. Stanford's arrest in 2009 reverberated across the globe, shaking the very foundations of the financial world 
The news of his fraudulent activities sent shockwaves far beyond the turquoise waters of the Caribbean, leaving investors worldwide in a state of utter disbelief and dismay. Many of these investors had placed their life savings and hopes for a prosperous future in Stanford's hands. The aftermath of Stanford's conviction was nothing short of catastrophic. The fallout from the scandal was immense, leaving thousands of investors worldwide in financial ruin. The total damage inflicted by Stanford's fraudulent empire amounted to a staggering $7 billion. Lives were shattered, dreams were crushed, and faith in the financial system was deeply shaken. The sunny Caribbean dream that Stanford had so convincingly sold to his victims had transformed into an unrelenting nightmare. The fallout continued closer to home, so to speak, impacting Antigua's economy. Stanford's operations were deeply intertwined with the economy of Antigua and Barbuda, so the trial and subsequent fallout had a significant impact on the nation's financial well-being. The loss of investor confidence and the tarnished reputation of the country as a financial hub took a toll on its economy for years to come. Yet, here's an insight into the human mind. Despite the eventual exposure of his fraudulent activities, there were still some loyal supporters who believed in Stanford's innocence until the very end. These individuals were convinced of his charisma, magnetism, and ability to defy the odds. Their unwavering faith in him is a testament to the power of his persona and the intricate web he wove around those who were drawn into his orbit. The Stanford Financial Group saga stands as a chilling reminder of the exorbitant cost of financial fraud. It is a cautionary tale that unveils the dark underbelly of ambition, the dangers of unchecked greed, and the devastating consequences of deceit. It exposes the vulnerabilities inherent in the financial system, highlighting the urgent need for greater diligence and skepticism in our financial decisions. One of the most critical lessons we can draw from this tale is the importance of due diligence. High returns often come hand-in-hand hand with high risks. Stanford's promises of extraordinary profits should have raised red flags, but many investors were captivated by the allure of quick wealth and failed to conduct proper investigations. If something sounds too good to be true, it most likely is. The Stanford case also underscores the vital role that regulatory bodies play in safeguarding the integrity of financial systems. While they may not always be able to prevent fraud entirely, their oversight and diligence are crucial in detecting and responding to fraudulent activities. In Stanford's case, it was the relentless pursuit of truth by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, that ultimately brought him to justice. It serves as a reminder of the significance of robust regulations and the need for continued vigilance to protect investors. Furthermore, diversification emerges as a vital strategy to mitigate risks and safeguard investments. Many of Stanford's victims had fallen into the trap of placing all their eggs in one basket. Diversifying one's investment portfolio across various assets and industries can help reduce vulnerability to catastrophic losses. It is a crucial lesson to remember when navigating the volatile waters of the financial world. As we bid farewell to the story of Alan Stanford, let us carry these lessons forward. Let us remain vigilant, questioning alluring promises and conducting thorough research before entrusting our hard-earned money to any venture. 
Let us advocate for stronger regulatory frameworks that protect investors and maintain the integrity of financial systems. And finally, let us embrace the concept of diversification to build resilience and safeguard our financial future. From the depths of this Caribbean mirage, we hopefully emerge wiser and more cautious, armed with knowledge that will guide us through the complexities of the financial landscape. The Stanford Financial Group scandal may have left a trail of devastation, but it also serves as a timeless reminder of the risks and pitfalls that await those who dare to be seduced by illusory promises. With that, we conclude our journey through the captivating story of Alan Stanford. May the lessons learned resonate in our hearts and minds as we navigate the turbulent waters of the financial world. And don't forget to subscribe to Money Mayhem so you can listen to new episodes in this and other series, dropping every Friday. Whether you're an aspiring financial wizard, a seasoned investor, or just a curious soul looking to learn from the past, there's something in this roller coaster ride for everyone. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date on all the thrilling episodes in our series. And one last shout-out. If you found our episodes both enlightening and entertaining, please consider leaving a tip in our virtual tip jar via the link in the description. Giving from as little as a single dollar and beyond will help support our mission to provide quality, engaging, and informative content that educates and empowers. Every little bit counts, and we greatly appreciate your support in helping us keep the conversation going. Until next time, may your financial journey be filled with excitement, adventure, and, most importantly, wisdom.